This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Tenth day, May the twenty fourth, part two. The Attorney General's reply. The Attorney General, at ten minutes before three, commenced his reply, speaking occasionally in so low a tone that the conclusion of many of his sentences was inaudible. He said, May it please your lordships and gentlemen of the jury, the case for the prosecution and the case for the defence are now before you, and it now becomes my duty to address to you such observations upon the whole of the evidence as suggest themselves to my mind. I feel that I have a moral, solemn, and important duty to perform. I wish I could have answered the appeal made to me the other day by my learned friend, Sergeant Shee, and say that I am satisfied with the case which he submitted to you for the defence. But standing here as the instrument of public justice, I feel that I should be wanting in the duty that I have to perform if I did not ask at your hands for a verdict of guilty against the prisoner. I approach the consideration of the case in, I hope, what I may term a spirit of fairness and moderation. My business is to convince you, if I can, by facts and legitimate arguments of the prisoner's guilt, and if I cannot establish it to your satisfaction, no man will rejoice more than I shall in a verdict of acquittal. Gentlemen, in the mass of evidence which has been brought before you, two main questions present themselves prominently for your consideration. Did the deceased man, whose death we are now inquiring, die a natural death, or was he taken off by the foul means of poison? And if the latter proposition be sanctioned by the evidence, then comes the important, if possible the still more important, question, whether the prisoner at the bar was the author of the death. I will proceed with the consideration of the subject in the order which I have mentioned. Did John Parsons Cook die by poison? I assert and contend the affirmative of that proposition. The case which is submitted to you on behalf of the Crown is this, that having been first practised upon by antimony, Cook was at last killed by strychnine. The first question to be considered is, what was the immediate and proximate cause of his death? The witnesses for the prosecution have told you, one and all, that in their judgment he died of tetanus, which signifies a convulsive spasmodic action of the muscles of the body can there be any doubt that their opinion is correct of course it does not follow that because he died of tetanus it must be the tetanus of strychnia that is a matter for after consideration but inasmuch as strychnine produces death by tetanus we must see in the first place whether it admits of doubt that he did die of tetanus i have listened with great attention to every form in which that disease has been brought under your consideration whether by the positive evidence of witnesses or whether by reference to the works of scientific writers and i assert deliberately that no case either in the human subject or in the animal has been brought under your notice in which the symptoms of tetanus have been so marked as in this case from the moment the paroxysms came on of which the unhappy man died the symptoms were of the most marked and of the most striking character every muscle of his body was convulsed he expressed the most intense dread of suffocation he entreats them to lift him up lest he should be suffocated and every muscle in his body from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet was so stricken the flexibility of the trunk and the limbs was gone 
and you could only have raised him up as you would have raised a corpse in order that he might escape from the dread of suffocation they turned him over and then in the midst of that fearful paroxysm one mighty spasm seemed to have seized his heart to have pressed from it the life-blood and the result was death and when he died his body exhibited the most marked symptoms of this fearful disease he was convulsed from head to foot you could have rested him on his head and heels his hands were clasped with the grasp that it required force to overcome and his feet assumed an arched appearance then if it was a case of tetanus into which fact i will not waste your time by inquiry the question arises was it a case of tetanus produced by strychnia i will confine myself for a moment to the exhibition of the symptoms as described by the witnesses tetanus may proceed from natural causes as well as from the administration of poisons and while the symptoms last they are the same but in the course of the symptoms and before the disease reaches its consummation in the death of the patient the distinction between the two is marked by characteristics which enable any one conversant with the subject to distinguish between them we have been told on the highest authority that the distinctions are these natural tetanus is a disease not of minutes not of hours but of days it takes say several other witnesses from three to four days and will extend to a period of even three weeks before the patient dies upon that point we have the most abundant and conclusive evidence of dr curling we have the evidence of dr brodie we have the evidence of dr daniel a gentleman who have seen something like twenty-five or thirty cases we have the evidence of a gentleman who has practised twenty-five years in india where these cases arising from cold are infinitely more frequent and he gives exactly the same description of the course which this disease invariably takes idiopathic or traumatic tetanus is therefore out of the question upon the evidence which has been given but traumatic tetanus is out of the question for a very different reason traumatic tetanus is brought on by the lesion of some part of the body but what is there in this case to show that there was anything like lesion at all we have had several gentlemen called who have come here with an evident determination to misconceive and misrepresent every fact we have called before you an eminent physician who had cook under his care it seems that in the spring of the year eighteen fifty five cook having found certain small spots manifest themselves in one or two parts of his body and having something of an ulcerated tongue and a sore throat conceived that he was labouring under symptoms of a particular character he addressed himself to dr savage who found that the course of medicine he had been pursuing was an erroneous one he enjoined the discontinuance of mercury his injunction was obeyed and the result was that the patient was suffering neither from disease nor wrong treatment but lest there should be any possibility of mistake dr savage says that long before the summer advanced every unsatisfactory symptom had entirely gone there was nothing wrong about him except that affection of the throat to which thousands of people are subject in other respects the man was better than he had been and might be said to be convalescent on the very day that he leaves london to go into the country a fortnight before the races his stepfather who accompanied him to the station congratulated him upon his healthy and vigorous appearance and the young man conscious of a restored state of health 
struck his breast and said he was well very well then he goes to shrewsbury and shortly afterwards arose those matters to which i am about to call your attention i want to know in what part of the evidence there is the slightest pretence for saying that this man had an affection which might bring on traumatic tetanus it is said that he has exhibited his tongue to witnesses and applied for a mercurial wash but it is clear that although he had at one time adopted that course he had under the recommendation of dr savage got rid of it and there is no pretence for saying he was suffering under any syphilitic affection of any kind that fact has been negatived by a man of the highest authority and eminence it is a pretence for which there was not a shadow of a foundation and i should shrink from my duty if i did not denounce it as a pretence unworthy of your attention there is nothing about the man which would warrant for a single moment the supposition that there was anything of that character in any part of his body when the tetanus set in one or two cases of traumatic tetanus have been adduced in the evidence which has been brought forward for the defence one is the case of a man in the london hospital who was brought into that institution one evening and died the same night but what are the facts the facts are that before he had been brought in he had a paroxysm early in the morning that he was suffering from ulcers of the most aggravated description the symptoms had run their course rapidly it is true but the case was not one of minutes but of hours another case has been brought forward in which the toe was amputated but there we have disease existing some time before death but then it is suggested that this may be a case of idiopathic tetanus proceeding from what they say that cook was a man of delicate constitution subject to excitement that he had something the matter with his chest that in addition to having something the matter with his chest he had the diseased condition of throat and putting all these things together they say that if the man took cold he might get idiopathic tetanus we are here launched into a sea of speculations and possibilities dr nunnally who comes here for the purpose of inducing you to believe there was something like idiopathic tetanus goes through supposed infirmities and talks about his excitability his delicacy of chest his affection of the throat and he says these things were predisposed to idiopathic tetanus if he took colds but what evidence is there that he did take cold not the slightest in the world there is not the smallest pretence that he ever complained of a cold or was treated for a cold i cannot help saying that it seemed to me that it is a scandal upon a learned and distinguished and liberal profession that men should come forward to put forth such speculations upon these perverted facts and draw from them sophistical and unwarrantable conclusions with a view to deceive you i have the greatest respect for science no man can have more but i cannot repress my indignation and abhorrence when i see it perverted and prostituted for the purposes of a particular case in a court of justice dr nunnally talked to you about certain excitements being the occasion of idiopathic tetanus you remember the sorts of excitement of which he spoke they are unworthy of your notice they were topics discreditable to be put forward by a witness as worthy of your consideration but suppose for a single moment that excitement at the time could produce any such effect where is the excitement manifested by cook as leading to the supposed disease 
they say that the man when he won his money at shrewsbury was for a moment excited and well he might be his fortunes depended upon the result of the race and i will not deny that he was overpowered with emotions of joy but those emotions subsided and we have no further trace of them from that time to the moment of his death the man passed the rest of the day with his friends in ordinary conversation and enjoyment no trace of emotion was found he is taken ill he goes to rugeley he is taken ill there again but is there the slightest symptom of excitement about him or of depression not the least when he is ill like most people he is low-spirited as soon as he gets a little better he is cheerful and happy he invites his friends and converses with them on the night of his death his conversation is cheerful he is mirthful and happy little thinking poor fellow of the fate that was depending over him he is cheerful and talks of the future but not in language of excitement what pretence is there for this idle story about excitement none whatever but even if there were excitement or depression if these things were capable of producing idiopathic tetanus the character of the disease is so essentially different that it is impossible to mistake the two what are the cases which they attempt to set up against us they brought forward a mary watson who with a gentleman came all the way from some place in scotland to tell us that a girl had been ill all day that she is taken worse at night that she gets well in a short time and goes about her business that is a case which they brought here to be compared with the death agony of this man these are the sort of cases with which they attempt to meet such a case as is spoken to here gentlemen i venture upon the evidence which has been brought before you to assert boldly that the cases of idiopathic and traumatic tetanus are marked by clear and distinct characteristics distinguishing them from the tetanus of strychnine and i say that the tetanus which accompanied cook's death is not referable to either of these forms of tetanus you have upon this point the evidence of men of the highest competency and most unquestionable integrity and upon their evidence i am satisfied you can come to no other conclusion than that this was not a case of either idiopathic or traumatic tetanus but then various attempts have been made to set up different causes as capable of producing this tetanic disease and first we have the theory of general convulsions and dr nunnally having gone through the bead-roll of the supposed infirmities of cook says oh this may have been a case of general convulsions i have known general convulsions assuming a tetanic character i said to him have you ever seen one single case in which death arising from general convulsions accompanied with tetanic symptoms has not ended in the unconsciousness of the patient he says no i have never heard of such a case not one but in some book or other i am told there is some such case reported and he cites for that purpose as an authority for general convulsions being accompanied with tetanic symptoms dr copland now dr copland i apprehend would stand higher as an authority than the man who quotes him dr copland might have been called but was not called notwithstanding the challenge which i threw out because it is unfortunately easier for the case to gather together from the east and from the west pr practitioners of more or less celebrity than to bring to bear on the subject the light of science as treasured in the books of the eminent practitioners 
whom you have seen but i say as regards general convulsions the distinction is plain if they destroy the patient they destroy consciousness but here unquestionably at the very last moment until cook's heart ceased to beat his consciousness remained but then comes another supposed condition from which death in this form is said to have resulted and that is the cause intended to be set up by a very eminent practitioner dr partridge it seems that in the post-mortem examination of cook when the spinal marrow was investigated some granules were found and it is said that these may have occasioned tetanic convulsions similar to those found in cook he is called to prove that this was a case of what is called arachnitis arising from granules i asked him the symptoms which he would find in such a case i called his attention to what it had evidently not been called before namely the symptoms in cook's case and i asked him in simple terms whether looking at these symptoms he would pledge his reputation in the face of the medical world and in the face of this court that this was a case of arachnitis he would not do so and the case of arachnitis went then we have a gentleman who comes all the way from scotland to inform us as the next proposition that cook's was a case of epileptic convulsions with tetanic complications well i asked him the question did you ever know of epilepsy with or without tetanic complications in which consciousness was not destroyed before the patient died his reply was no i cannot say that i ever did but i have read in some book that such a case has occurred is there anything to make you think this was epilepsy it may have been epilepsy because i don't know what else it is but you must admit that epilepsy is characterized generally by loss of consciousness what difference would the tetanic complications have made that he was unable to explain i remind you of this species of evidence in which the witnesses have resorted to the most speculative reasoning and put forward the barest possibilities without the shadow of foundation but this i undertake to assert that there is not a single case to which they have spoken from their experience or as the result of their own knowledge on which there were the formidable and decisive symptoms of marked tetanus which existed in this case having gone through these three sets of diseases general convulsions arachnitis epilepsy proper and epilepsy with satanic complications i suppose we have pretty nearly exhausted the whole of these scientific theories but we are destined to have another and that assumed the formidable name of angina pectoris it must have struck you when my learned friend opened his case that he never ventured to assert the nature of the disease to which they referred the death of cook and it strikes me as most remarkable that no less than four distinct and separate theories are set up by the witnesses who have been called general convulsions arachnitis epilepsy with tetanic complications and lastly angina pectoris my learned friend had this advantage in not stating to you what his medical witnesses would set up because i admit that one after another they took me by surprise the gentleman who was called yesterday and who talked of angina pectoris would not have escaped so easily if i had been in possession of the books to which he referred for i should have been able to expose the ignorance the presumption of the assertions he dared to make 
I say ignorance and presumption, and, what is worse, an intention to deceive. I assert it in the face of the whole medical profession, and I am sure I can prove it. These medical witnesses, one and all, differ in the views they take on the subject, but there is a remarkable coincidence between the views of some of them and the views of those who have been examined on the other side. Dr. Partridge, Dr. Robinson, and Dr. Letherby, the most eminent of the witnesses whom my learned friend has called, agreed with the statements of Dr. Brodie and other witnesses that in the whole of their experience and the whole range of their learning and observations they know of no known disease to which the symptoms in Cook's case can be referred. When such men as these agree upon any point, it is impossible to exaggerate its importance. If it be the fact that there is no known disease which can account for such symptoms as those in Cook's case, and that they are referable to poison alone, can you have any doubt that that poison was strychnia? The symptoms, at all events, from the time the paroxysm set in, are precisely the same. Distinctions are sought to be made by the sophistry of the witnesses for the defence between some of the antecedent symptoms and some of the others. I think I shall show you that these distinctions are imaginary, and that there is no foundation for them. I think I may say that the witnesses called for the defence admit this, that, from the time the paroxysm set in, of which Cook died, until the time of his death, the symptoms are precisely similar to that of tetanus by strychnine. But then, they say, and this is worthy of most particular attention, there are points of difference which have led them to the conclusion that these symptoms could not have resulted from strychnine. In the first place, they say that the period which elapsed between the supposed administration of the poison and the first appearance of the symptoms is longer than they have observed in the animals on which they have experimented. The first observation which arises is this, that there is a known difference between animal and human life, in the power with which certain specific things act upon their organization. It may well be that poison administered to a rabbit will produce its effect in a given time, it by no means follows that it will produce the same effect in the same time on an animal of a different description. Still less does it follow that it will exercise its baneful influence in the same time on a human subject. The whole of the evidence on both sides leads to establish this fact, that not only in individuals of different species, but between individuals of the same species, the same poison and the same influence will produce effects different in degree different in duration different in power but again it is perfectly notorious that the rapidity with which the poison begins to work depends mainly upon the mode of its administration if it is administered in a fluid state it acts with greater rapidity if it is given in a solid state its effects come on more slowly if it is given in an indurated substance it will act with still greater tardiness then what was the period at which this poison began to act after its administration, assuming it to have been poison? It seems from Mr. Jones's statement that the pills were administered somewhere about eleven o'clock. They were not administered on his first arrival, for the patient, as if with an intuitive sense of the death that awaited him, strongly resisted the attempts to make him take them, and no doubt these remonstrances and the endeavours to overcome them occupied some period of time the pills were at last given assuming which i only do for the sake of argument that the pills contained strychnine 
how soon did they begin to operate mr jones says he went down to supper and came back again about twelve o'clock upon his return to the room after a word or two of conversation with cook he proceeded to undress and go to bed and had not been in bed ten minutes before a warning came that another of the paroxysms was to take place the maid-servant puts it still earlier and it appears that so early as ten minutes before twelve the first alarm was given which would make the interval little more than a quarter of an hour when these witnesses tell us that it would take an hour and a half or two hours we see here another of those exaggerated determinations to see the facts only in the way that will be the most favourable to the prisoner i find in some of the experiments that have been made that the duration of time before the poison begins to work has been little if anything less than an hour in the case of the girl at glasgow it was stated it was three-quarters of an hour before the pills began to work there may have been some reason for the pills not taking effect within a certain period after their administration it would be easy to mix them up with substances difficult of solution or which might retard their action i cannot bring myself to believe that if in all other respects you are perfectly satisfied that the symptoms the consequences the effects were analogous and similar in all respects to those produced by strychnine it is not because the pills have been taken only a quarter of an hour that you will say that strychnine was not administered in this case but they say the premonitory symptoms were wanting and they say that in the case of animals the animal at first manifests some uneasiness shrinks and draws itself into itself as it were and avoids moving that certain involuntary twitchings about the head come on and they say there were no premonitory symptoms in cook's case i utterly deny the proposition i say there were premonitory symptoms of the most marked character he is lying in his bed he suddenly starts up in an agony of alarm what made him do that was there nothing premonitory nothing that warned him the paroxysm was coming on he jumps up says go and fetch palmer fetch me help i am going to be ill as i was last night what was that but a knowledge that the symptoms of the previous night were returning and a warning of what he might expect unless some relief were obtained he sits up and prays to have his neck rubbed what was the feeling about his neck but a premonitory symptom which was to precede the paroxysms which were to supervene he begs to have his neck rubbed and that gives him some comfort but here they say this could not have been tetanus from strychnia because animals cannot bear to be touched for a touch brings on a paroxysm not only a touch but a breath of air a sound a word a movement of any one near will bring on a return of the paroxysm now in two cases of death from strychnine we have shown that the patient has endured the rubbing of his limbs and received satisfaction from that rubbing we produced a third case in mrs smith's case where her legs were distorted she prayed and entreated that she might have them straightened the lady at leeds in the case which dr nunnally himself attended implored her husband between the spasms to rub her legs and arms in order to overcome the rigidity that case was within his own knowledge and yet in spite of it although he detected strychnine in the body of the unhappy woman he dares to say that cook's having tolerated the rubbing between the paroxysms is a proof 
that he had not taken strychnia but there is a third case the case of clutterbuck he had taken an overdose of strychnia and suffered from the reappearance of tetanus and his only comfort was to have his legs rubbed and therefore i say that the continued endeavour to persuade a jury that the fact of cook's having had his neck rubbed proves that this is not tetanus by strychnia shows nothing but the dishonesty and insincerity of the witnesses who have so dared to pervert the facts but they go further and say that cook was able to swallow so he was before the paroxysms came on but nobody has ever pretended that he could swallow afterwards he swallowed the pills and what is very curious and illustrates part of the theory is this that it was the act of swallowing the pills a sort of movement in raising his head which brought on the violent paroxysm in which he died so far from mitigating against the supposition that this was a case of strychnine the fact strongly confirms it then they call our attention to the appearance after death and they say there are circumstances to be found which militate against this being a case of strychnine they say the limbs became rigid either at the time of death or immediately after and that ought not to be found in a case of strychnia dr nunnally says i have always found the limbs of animals become flaccid before death and have not found them become rigid after death now i can hardly believe that statement the very next witness who got into the box told us that he had made two experiments upon cats and killed them both and he described them as indurated and contracted when he found them some hours after death and yet the presence of rigidity in the body immediately after death is put forth by dr nunnally as one of his reasons for saying this is not a death by strychnia although dr taylor told us that in the case of one of the cats the rigidity of the body was so great that he could hold it out by the leg in a horizontal position notwithstanding that evidence dr nunnally has the audacity to say that he does not believe this is a case of strychnine because there was rigidity of the limbs because the feet were distorted and the hands clinched and the muscles rigid this shows what you are to think of the honesty of this sort of evidence in which facts are selected because they make in favour of particular hypotheses of the party advancing them the next thing that is said is that the heart was empty and that in animals operated upon by dr nunnally and dr letherby the heart was full i don't think that applies to all cases but it is a remarkable fact connected with the history of the poison that you never can rely upon the precise form of its symptoms and appearances there are only certain great leading marked characteristic features we have here the main marked leading characteristic features and we have what is more collateral incidents similar to the cases in which the administration and the fact of death have been proved beyond all possibility of dispute why in two cases which have been mentioned that of mrs smith and the glasgow girl the heart was congested and empty we know that in cases of tetanus death may result from more than one cause all the muscles of the body are subject to the exciting action of the poison but no one can tell in what order these muscles may be affected or where the poisonous influence will put forth when it arrests the play of the lungs and the breathing of the atmospheric air the result will be the heart is full 
but if some spasm seizes on the heart the heart will be empty you have never any perfect certainty as to the mode in which the symptoms will exhibit themselves but this is brought forward as a conclusive fact against death by strychnine and yet these men who make this statement under the sanction of scientific authority have heard both cases spoken to by the gentlemen who examined the bodies then with regard to congestion of the brain and other vessels the same observation applies instead of being killed by action on the respiratory muscles of the heart death is the result of a long series of paroxysms and you expect to find the brain and other vessels congested by that series of convulsive spasms as death takes place from one or other of these causes so will the appearances be there is every reason to believe that the symptoms in this case were symptoms of tetanus in the strongest and most aggravated form looking at the symptoms which attended this unhappy man setting aside the theory of convulsions of epilepsy of arachnitis and angina pectoris and excluding idiopathic and traumatic tetanus what remains the tetanus of strychnine and the tetanus of strychnine alone and i pray your attention to the cases in which there was no question as to strychnine having been administered in which the symptoms were so similar the symptoms so analogous that i think you cannot hesitate to come to the conclusion that this death was death by strychnine several witnesses of the highest eminence both on the part of the crown and for the defence agree that in the whole range of their experience observation and knowledge they have known of no natural disease to which these remarkable symptoms can be attributed that being so and there being a known poison which will produce them how strong how cogent how irresistible is the conclusion that it is that poison and that poison alone to which they are to be attributed on the other hand the case is not without its difficulties strychnia was not found in this body and we have it no doubt upon strong evidence that in a great variety of experiments upon the bodies of animals killed by strychnia strychnia has been detected by tests which science placed at the disposal of scientific men if strychnia had been found of course there would have been no difficulty in the case and we should have had none of the ingenious theories which medical gentlemen have been called here to propound the question for your consideration is whether the absence of its detection leads conclusively to the view that this death was not caused by the administration of strychnia now in the first place under what circumstances was the examination made by dr taylor and dr rees they told us that the stomach of the man was brought to them for analysation under the most unfavourable circumstances they state that the contents of the stomach had been lost and therefore they had no opportunity of experimenting upon them it is true that they who put the portions of the body into the jar make statements somewhat different but there appears to have been by accident some spilling of the contents and there is the most undeniable evidence of considerable bungling in the way in which the stomach had been cut and placed in the jar it was cut says dr taylor from end to end and it was tied up at both ends it had been turned among the intestines and placed amongst a mass of feculent matter and was in the most unsatisfactory condition for analysation it is very true that dr nunnally mr herapath 
and Dr. Sotheby, say that whatever impurities there may have been, if strychnia had been in the stomach, they would have found strychnia there. I should have had every confidence in the testimony of Dr. Herapath, if he had not confessed a fact which had come to my knowledge, that he had asserted that this was a case of poisoning, but that they did not go the right way to find it out. I reverence the man who, from a sense of justice and love of truth, will come forward in favour of any man for the purpose of stating what he believes to be true. But I abhor the trafficked testimony which I regret to see men of science sometimes advance. But assuming all they say to be true, as to the case of detecting strychnine, is it certain that it can be found in all cases? Dr. Taylor says no and it would be a most mischievous and dangerous proposition to assert that it is necessarily so, for it enables many a guilty man to escape, who, by administering the smallest quantity necessary to destroy life, might prevent its detection in the stomach. What have these gentlemen done? They have given large doses in the experiments they have made for the purposes of this case, in which they have been retained i use the word retained for it is the proper word in all these cases i say they have given doses large enough to be detected but the gentleman who made the experiments in cook's case failed in detecting strychnine in two cases out of four in which they had administered it to animals the conclusion i draw is that there is no positive mode of detection but this case does not rest here alas i wish it did I must now draw your attention to one part of the case which has not been met or attempted to be disputed in the slightest degree by my learned friend. My learned friend said that he would contest the case for the prosecution step by step. Alas, we are now upon ground upon which any friend has not even ventured a word in explanation. Was the prisoner at the bar possessed of the poison of strychnia? This is a matter with which it behoved my learned friend to deal, and to exhaust all the means in his power in order to meet this part of the case. The prisoner obtained possession of strychnia on the Monday night. It is true that the evidence of the man who sold the strychnia to Palmer, as I stated at the outset of these proceedings, and I repeat it now, must be received with care and attention. Now Newton said that on the night when Palmer came back from London, he came to him and obtained three grains of that poison, the symptoms and effects of which are precisely similar to those which are stated to have occurred in the case of this poor man. With respect to the evidence of Newton, my learned friend has done no more than repeat the warning which I gave you at the commencement of the case. You have heard the reason assigned by the witness why he did not state the fact of his having sold strychnine to the prisoner on the previous evening, before the coroner and you will judge of the value of the explanation which he gave upon the other hand there is the consideration what conceivable motive could this young man have had for now coming forward and deposing to the fact of his having sold this poison to the prisoner except a sense of truth my learned friend has very justly and very properly asked for your most attentive consideration to the question of the motives involved in this part of the evidence, before you can come to the conclusion of the prisoner having taken away, with malice and forethought, the life of another. Hideous though may be the crime of taking away life by poison, 
it is probably not so horrible to contemplate as the motive of a judicial murder effected by a false witness against a man's life can you suppose that this young man newton could have the shadow of any such motive in coming forward in a court like this to take away the life of the prisoner at the bar as alas his evidence must do if you believe him if you believe the witness that on the monday night for no other conceivable and assignable purpose except the deed of darkness to be committed that night the prisoner at the bar obtained from him the fatal means and instrument whereby cook was to be destroyed it is impossible that you can come to any other conclusion that the prisoner is guilty of the foul deed with which he stands charged at the bar my learned friend says that newton did not speak truth because first he did not make this statement before the coroner and secondly because newton laid the time of palmer's arrival at nine o'clock whereas he did not arrive until ten o'clock now newton only stated that it was about nine o'clock and every one knows how easy it is to make a slight mistake as to the hour when there is nothing particular to fix the event on the memory my learned friend has sought to meet this part of the case he has produced a witness all i can say of whom is that for the sake of the prisoner at the bar i trust you will not allow him to be affected by anything which that most disreputable witness jeremiah smith has stated now dr bamford said that palmer told him he had himself seen cook between nine and ten o'clock while smith said that they did not leave the car until past ten o'clock with respect to the evidence of smith that he saw palmer alight from the car go from thence to the house of palmer's mother i ask you not to believe one single word of it because i do not myself believe a single word of his evidence certainly such a miserable spectacle as that witness in the box i have never been surpassed in a court of justice he is a member of the legal profession and i blush that such a member is to be found upon the rolls there was not one who heard his evidence who was not satisfied that the man came here to tell a falsehood not one who was not convinced that he was mixed up in many of the villainies which if not perpetrated were at all events contemplated and that he came here to save the life of his companion and friend and the son of the woman with whom he had that intimacy the nature of which he sought in vain to disguise i cannot but think that looking to the whole of this part of the case you must believe the evidence of newton and if you do so believe it then that evidence is conclusive of the case. End of section 20